Well, there's no comfort like the comfort of Almighty God, is there? Daniel chapter 8 is our text this morning, and it is perhaps one of the most obscure chapters in all the Bible. I did a sermon search at a popular sermon site and found more than 2,000 sermons on Psalm 23 and more than 2,000 on John chapter 3 and less than 400 on Daniel 8 and was surprised uh, to find uh, that many. I don't believe I've ever heard a message on Daniel chapter 8. And yet, as I will explain later, we are living today in this city even with the ramifications of Daniel chapter 8. Daniel 8 explains some uh, significant elements of our own existence here in this region. Here in Daniel 8, there is trouble everywhere. There are battling rams, and there are goats, there are horns, and there, are the end, there appears here the end times as well. There is trouble everywhere on every hand. It reminds me of a couple of college young men, a couple of sophomores who uh, took the school mascot, a goat, and decided to house him in their dorm room. And somebody said, well, what about the smell? And they said, well, the goat will just have to get used to it. (laughs) Now, what impresses me about that is that, number one, a school has a goat as a mascot. Don't mean to denigrate the Naval Academy, but several do. And then uh, the poor goat smells as bad as he does. And worst of all, uh, he's got to get accustomed to the aroma of the dorm room of a couple of college young men, sophomores. There's trouble everywhere. And just like there was there, there's trouble in Daniel chapter 8. Here, God gave Daniel a vision that foretold a time of trouble for Israel. And what was that prophetic vision? Well, I want us to look first at Daniel's prophecy. First, there is the ram. And the ram here is named later as media in Persia, the, king, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. Beginning in verse number 2, I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking, that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision that I was by the river Uli. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there, standing beside the river, was a ram which had two horns, the Medes and the Persians, the two horns. And the two horns were high. But one was higher than the other. The kingdom of the Medes was more powerful than the kingdom of the Persians. And the higher one came up last. And that's how historically it happened. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him. Nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. And that's entirely what happened historically. Now we don't have to guess an awful lot, or at all, about who... This ram happens to be because in verse 20, this vision, this prophecy is interpreted for Daniel. In verse 20 it says, The ram which you saw having two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. How remarkable. A couple of hundred years before the rise of the kings, uh, uh, the kingdom of the Medes and Persians, or right before, Daniel sees this prophecy And it is actually named. Now that has led some, as we have said, 
to say that Daniel is not really engaging in prophecy, but in history, but just calls it prophecy. And we discovered recently how that simply can't be the case because uh, uh, for a variety of factors, six of which I outlined last week. But this is the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, and this happens to be the background and the history behind the book of Esther and Nehemiah. It happens to be the, kings of the, the kingdom of the Medes and Persians where Esther and Nehemiah will function and do their exploits. But then the second part of the prophecy and the vision is the goat. The goat of Greece and what I believe is very clear, Alexander the Great, beginning in verse 5. And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west, crossed the surface of the whole earth, Without touching the ground. He's so fast and rapid in his conquest, it's as if in this vision he doesn't touch the ground at all. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him attacked the ram and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver him from the ram. Therefore the male goat grew very great, and when he became become strong, the large horn was broken. And in the place of it, four notable ones came up towards the four winds of heaven. Now later in verses 23 through 26, or excuse me, verses 21 and 22. This will be explained in more detail, but here it's sufficient to say this is the rapid advance of a kingdom. Alexander the Great fits the profile here. He is the one that defeated the kings and the Medes and Persians and covered up the whole known world by the time he was age 33. I mean, there's some 33-year-olds not awake to life by the age of 33. And Alexander has conquered the entire known world by this age, and he did it with breathtaking rapidity. And yet, at age 33, he died. He was broken off, as the text says in verse number 8. He was broken from uh, alcoholism and other um, and, and, and some diseases that afflicted him. He could conquer the world, but he could not conquer himself. And then it says here in the text in verse 8 that his kingdom was divided to four horns or four authorities. And that's precisely what happened uh, historically. Uh, Alexander's kingdom was divided uh, among Cassander and Ptolemy, uh, uh, Lysimachus, uh, and Seleucus. And that's what took place in verses 5 through 8, 21 through 22. And historically, that's entirely accurate. And then we find a third element of the prophecy and the vision And that is the horn of horns that comes out of really the kingdom ruled by Seleucus, a descendant of Seleucus that took over for Alexander the Great in part of his kingdom. And most Bible commentators believe and historians believe that he's really referring here to Antiochus Epiphanes. And he does so with startling specificity. Verses 9 through 14. And out of one of them, Seleucus, came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south and towards the east and towards the glorious land. Now, if Daniel calls the land glorious, to what is he referring? He's referring to Jerusalem and Israel. And it grew up 
to the host of heaven and cast down some of the host and the stars to the ground. Abraham's descendants were promised to be as numerous as the stars. And so he is anti-Semitic and he's casting some of them down to the ground and he trampled them. In fact, he rode into Jerusalem in a rage and slaughtered women, children, men, and others and nearly evacuated all of Jerusalem from Jews because of his hate and rage and violence. And he, verse 11, he exalted himself as high as the prince of hosts. Antiochus IV Epiphanes gave himself the name Epiphanes. Epiphanes means manifestation of God. Well, after he had worked over the Jews for a while, they gave him the name Antiochus Epimenes, which was Antiochus the madman. But he declared himself deity and God, and verse 11 said that he would do so. He exalted himself as high as the prince of hosts, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away. So when he ruled Israel and Jerusalem, he prohibited sacrifice and the practice of Judaism. Parents could no longer circumcise their boys. They could not practice the daily sacrifice. They could not practice the feasts. If anyone was found carrying a copy or a scroll of the Old Testament, he was executed. If one was found in the home, he was executed. And he had government employees entering the homes of the Jews to survey them and to make sure they did not practice the faith. And then it goes on in verse 11 to say, And the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Antiochus Epiphanes replaced the altar in the temple with an altar to Zeus, and there he sacrificed a pig in the temple. And that is what the Jews would call the abomination of desolation. In fact, Daniel will mention that in verse number 13. And Jesus picks up on this to refer to the Antichrist in the future. In Matthew 24, in verse number 15. And it goes on in verse 12. Because of transgression, so there's, there's an increase in transgression, a multiplication of sins. Everyone is unrestrained. There, there's no objective morals, no objective truth in his day. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. In the center, some places in the centers of power, in the nations of the earth, including our own, what matters is not what is true, what matters is what you say that gains you power over your opponent. And so there's constant warfare between the parties, constant warfare between the corporations, constant warfare amongst people, anyone seeking any degree of power and truth has fallen to the ground. It did in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes and it will in the day of the Antichrist. And John in 1 John 4 will say, Many Antichrists have gone out, and the spirit of the Antichrist prevails. It says at the end of verse 12, He did all this and prospered. In verse 13, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and transgression of desolation, or abomination of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 days, a little more than six years, and that is precisely what happened with Antiochus Epiphanes. After about six years, he was cut down. Later, in verses 23 through 26, it'll say, without human hands, 
he was destroyed. Well, that's true. Antiochus Epiphanes contracted a bowel disease and was completely wasted away without any intervention on the part of human authorities. And so verse 14 happened entirely. And then it goes on to say, Then the sanctuary will be cleansed. This is what Antiochus Epiphanes did. And I must say to you, while we do enjoy physical liberty in many places throughout the world, there are some that have absolute murder in their hearts. The four horsemen of the apocalypse began to write, uh, of the uh, four horsemen of the atheist apocalypse, uh, began to write of a new atheist vision. And they were so enraged and so angered at the advance of religion over the previous century that they said all vile manner of things. Christopher Hitchens, the late Christopher Hitchens was one. Richard Dawkins was another. Daniel Dennett and Sam Harris. And they argued intensely, vociferously, and out of, in an out-of-their-mind fashion, without reason, without rationale, without evidence, ironically, claiming to be scholars, most of whom have PhDs, by the way, that religion poises everything. And Sam Harris went so far in his book, The End of Faith, to say, there are some propositions that are so dangerous that we might be in some circumstances ethical to kill those who believe them. I imagine if we were to take a blood sample and turn it into Ancestry.com, he might be related to Antiochus Epiphanes. That's the horn in Antiochus IV Epiphanes. But then there is the Antichrist, and this is subtle in the text. There is coming a day when Satan will fully unfurl his end-time program in opposition to Jesus Christ. And as the day comes for Christ to return, he will intensify this work. And Paul elaborates this on this in similar terms in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We looked at that a few months ago. I won't cover it again today. But this text alludes to that day when he will do everything he can to eradicate from culture and society every last vestige of the name of Christ and his people. And verse 17 alludes to that. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said, Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. So he is speaking about the end time. So Antiochus Epiphanes ends up being, for us, a prototype of what the Antichrist will be one day. And similar references to the time of the end are made in verse 19, verse 23, and verse number 26. Now this is Daniel's prophecy, and it is not a bucket of sunshine at all. It involves a ram that destroys, it involves a goat, it involves the horn, Antiochus Epiphanes, and this is a prototype of the Antichrist to come. Well, that's Daniel's prophecy. What about Daniel's pertinence? How is this pertinent and applicable to us? Does it mean anything to us? This obscure chapter in the Scripture, people that historically we really don't have much interest in, is there any pertinence to us? And I would say yes. There is trouble all over this text, and trouble possesses teaching power. In fact, I would say to you that we will probably learn more from our sorrows and our troubles than any other single factor in our lives. 
Nothing has as much power, teaching power, as the trouble that we face. In fact, you can thrive when you know this truth, and especially when you know how God interacts and involves Himself in that. And so, instead of trouble diminishing your faith and your trust in God, trouble should actually do the exact opposite. It should strengthen, it should escalate, it should burgeon, it should expand your faith in God, not reduce it. Listen to me carefully, and please, sweet people, don't ever, don't ever forget what I'm telling you now. There is never a legitimate reason to doubt God. Not one. I understand and sympathize when people do. If you want to speak to me sometime about that, you'll have all of my sympathy. I have been there. But I do not say that out of a vacuum. All the sorrows I have experienced have led me to come to the point to bow everything before Him and to trust Him. I've got to say to you, the alternative is not very beautiful. It doesn't get better when you drift from Him. Things do not improve when you abandon faith in Him. And the influence of a faithless life is not very beautiful at all. And so I don't want to say our only uh, the only uh, option that you have that is practically helpful is to trust God. But, but the truth is, that is. But there are many, many reasons to do that. And you can thrive in a time of trouble when you know how God interacts with it. Well, how does God interact with my trouble? Well, the first thing is God knows your trouble. He knows it in His mind. He knows it also in His experience. Um, God is omniscient. There's nothing he does not know. He has all omni-knowledge, science. He knows all there is to know. He knows your trouble in his mind. And what a marvelous thing it, uh, it is to know that God knows the trouble that is on its way in our lives. In fact, he's told us in the Word that we will have trouble. John 16, 1, Jesus said, I've told you these things. Uh, the troubles that he's just spoken of in John 15. And then in John 16, he summarizes that by saying, in this world you have tribulation. Jesus was a realist. He didn't sandpaper off the rough edges of the truth. In this world you have tribulation. We know it is coming. And you know, it helps me to know trouble's coming. Sometimes in my home, I'll be walking along a highway and some certain 11-year-old boy will duck around a corner. And I know exactly what he has in mind. He's going to jump out and try to scare the daylights out of me. He, he's done it once, and so uh, he's quite, um, quite uh, infatuated with his abilities and quite proud of himself. But if I see him duck around a corner and know he's going to jump out, it helps me to know that he is awaiting me and that that's coming. And usually I find him out, and it doesn't frighten me at all. And I would say the same is true when, our, when we deal with our own troubles. You need to know there is trouble ahead. You are not going to make it through the rest of this year without some kind of anxiety or sorrow. Something is around the corner. I said last week you're either coming out of a trouble, in a trouble, or headed towards one. And that's true. One way or another... It's on the way. And this is what God knows. He knows something is coming, and so you can prepare for it. You're not like the Japanese in April of 1945. When uh, 
Doolittle's B-52s appeared over the sky of the cities. The Japanese absolutely panicked because they were assured that no American bomber or plane would ever enter Japanese airspace. And when it did, they fell to pieces and they fell apart and were terribly weakened. God does not do that. God does not withhold the truth that there are going to be difficulties. You're going to have difficulties in your marriage. Let, let me just tell you beforehand. You're going to have difficulties with your children for the rest of your life, no matter how old they are. You're, you're going to have some financial setbacks. You're going to have difficulties with uh, people in your neighborhood. You're going to have difficulties maybe even with people in your own church. You're going to have difficulties. Now, now that we've cleared that up, what are you going to do? Well, let, let me move on to another thing. God not only knows this in His mind, God knows this also in His experience. God knows what it's like to be rejected. A nation He cultivated a nation he loved, a nation he wedded, rejected him. John 1, 11 says of Jesus, He came unto his own, and his own, what? Received him not. I mean, you would have thought when Jesus showed up that it would have been the sweetest, most endearing thing in the world for Israel. And yet he came into his own, and his own received him not. He knows what it's like for someone not to like him and not change their minds and die in their rejection of him. He, so he knows rejection. God also knows what it's like to have children that disappoint you. He knows what it's like. He knows what it's like for them to break your heart. He also knows what it's like to have a child die. And he did in the death of his son. Now, he leveraged that for the salvation, to make salvation available to the world. And thank God that he did. When Jesus bled on the cross, he bled for our sins. And so there's hope to be released from the condemnation that we're under because of the law of God. But, ladies and gentlemen, God went through that. And it doesn't surprise me at all that when Jesus died, the whole earth grew dark for three hours. God darkened it. Because, quite frankly, it was dark in heaven. And darken his heart because his son was dying. He knows rejection. He knows disappointment. He knows, he knows death. God knows all of this in his mind. God knows all of this in his experience. So listen, in a time of trouble, you'll never find anyone who has mastered trouble more than he has. You will never find anyone who is a better counselor. Isaiah will call him in Isaiah 9-6, the wonderful counselor. There's no one who can tutor and direct those who are lumbering under sorrow and heartache and heartbreak like he can. And, and quite frankly, none of the faiths and none of the philosophies, none of the unbelief and skepticism of the world has an adequate answer for the sorrows of life. Only Jesus Christ has the answer for the sorrows of life. So he knows it in his mind. He knows it in his experience. And so in a time of trouble, the last one that you need to flee and the first one you need to pursue is him. God knows your trouble. But that's not all. Sometimes God starts your trouble. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 8 makes it very clear that whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. And so sometimes, not all the time, and you've got to discern this for yourself, but sometimes the trouble 
that we experience is something that God actually starts as much as parents start the discipline in their children's life when they misbehave. In fact, uh, the author of um, Hebrews, who I think was either John or Luke, uh, went so far as to say that uh, it is only his own children that he disciplines. In fact, if we are without discipline when we stray from God, then we are not of His children. You see, I don't discipline children that belong to someone else. I might tell on them. I might say, listen, I, I'm sure I hate to tell you this, but I know that you would want to know because I would want to know if my children misbehave, but your child, but I won't discipline them. I discipline my own children, and God does as well. The sure sign that you belong to God is that when you begin to drift from Him, God intervenes and He disciplines you. And He may start some trouble in your life. I remember and recall something Adrian Rogers said about the evangelist scandals of the, late, the mid and late 80s with Jim Baker and Jimmy Swaggart. I mean, it was in the papers for days, all over the evening news broadcasts, and it certainly wasn't balanced or very careful. Of course, there wasn't much to be balanced about or careful with under those, with those scandals. And one woman came up to Adrian Rogers and said, he said later, uh, Dr. Rogers, why, why doesn't God, why is God letting this happen? Why doesn't he cover it up? And Adrian said, well, cover it up. It's God who uncovered it. God started some trouble. The clearest evidence that I belong to Him is that when I stray, He disciplines me. So God knows your trouble, and God sometimes starts your trouble. But then, third, God allows your trouble one way or the other. He may not directly cause some trouble, but He allows it. And that was set in motion with the fall of the human race into sin in Genesis chapter 3. And you've got to understand in response to that, God has given us institutions. He's given us commands, family, government, church. He's given us parents. He's given us others to give us direction to keep us in safety. And beloved, that is supposed to be enough to keep us out of the vast majority of trouble. And so we don't complain when we ignore the counsel of God through the various mediums He gives us and we get ourselves into trouble. It reminds me of the rancher in Texas who one day was met by a particular government agent. He said, I need to come onto your property and search for the growth of illegal drugs. He said, okay, but don't go over into that pasture over there. And that man arrogantly whipped out his badge and said, do you see this badge? This is given to me by the federal government. I can go anywhere I want to. No questions asked and no resistance. Do you understand? That's what this badge says. And I'm holding up my badge. Do you see my badge? He said, yes, sir. He said, go on. Well, it wasn't long before that man came run screaming back towards the rancher. He's being chased by the bull. And the rancher said, show him your badge. Show him your badge. <laughs> well, just as the rancher tried to keep that fellow out of trouble and he was stubborn and wouldn't listen, God has given us commands to keep us out of a lot of the trouble that began in Genesis chapter 3. And 
uh, it's not appropriate to complain against God when we get ourselves into trouble. It'd be like someone who smokes cigarettes their whole life or used tobacco their whole life, and they end up with lung cancer or some other cancer, and then complaining, I don't know why God's letting me go through this. Please, let's take a little responsibility. God has given us commands to keep us out of trouble. He's given us guidance and direction. That should be enough. Most of the trouble we have gotten ourselves into is self-imposed. But there's a third thing God does. And that is God leverages trouble. He leverages trouble. Now, in verse 14 and in verse 25... God alludes to the end of the terror of Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He alludes to the end of it. And historically, that's precisely what happened. In A.D. 163, the Jews got tired of us, and Judas Maccabeus arose and led a freedom movement. And he has a powerful story that's recorded in the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha, by the way, should not be in the Bible, but it is good and interesting historical reading. It does have some errors, uh, factual errors in it. That's why we don't include it in the Bible. But it is wonderful reading because Judas Maccabeus led a freedom movement that broke the chains of the rule over Jerusalem by Antiochus Epiphanes. In fact, he was so powerful and effective, they called him Judas the Hammer. And that's what Maccabeus means. To celebrate that, they rededicated the temple. And they didn't have quite enough oil to do so. They had just enough oil to burn for one day, but it burned for eight. And so that's why our Jewish friends now have a menorah candle with eight candles. And they celebrate Hanukkah, December of every year. And it's that particular festival that Jesus referenced in John 10, 22, where he visited and delivered the message about the Good Shepherd. So, this was overthrown. God leveraged that trouble, and it appears in John chapter 10, verse 22. But that's not all. When Alexander the Great rapidly conquered the world, including the Medes and Persians, he not only took military conquest with him, Alexander the Great took with him Greek culture, Greek mathematics, Greek education, which influences us today, and he took the Koine Greek language the common Greek language. Now, do you know what your New Testament was first written in? Well, that language covered up the whole world, and it influenced the translation of the Greek Old Testament, and it happened to be the language into which the New Testament was first written. You today, when you read the New Testament, are reading a document that was first written in the nuance, the particular, the detailed language that is able to communicate great complexity and great beauty in the New Testament because it was written in Koine Greek. In other words, this young, ambitious, drunken, but effective king and military leader paved the way for the spread of the gospel throughout the known earth. Listen, when you are in trouble, even trouble of your own making, you just might want to consider you may be in the midst of a God movement to spread the name of His Son. And historically, that is precisely what took place in this text. God never wastes a crisis in your life or mine. 
Every bit of it can be used by him, and from it he can milk gospel significance and significance for the name of his son. And so when you endure trouble, instead of whining and complaining, you go ahead and cry, you go ahead and weep, you go ahead and lean on somebody, but when you put yourself back together, go before God and ask God, Oh God, what is your goal in all of this? What are you doing in favor of the name of Jesus Christ through my sorrows and through my troubles. God, what is your goal? This may be a gospel movement. Psalm 76.10, even the wrath of man shall praise you. Philippians 1.12 from a jail, Paul said, I want you to understand, brethren, the things that have happened to me, the things that have happened to me have served to advance the gospel. Listen, everything is an advantage for God in the name of His Son, one way or another. And everything that comes our way fits into the boundaries of the rule of God and His intention to exalt His Son, Jesus. Looking back on my own life, I've seen that. In fact, when I came to Christ, I was in the midst of a lot of trouble. Some of it was hoisted on me by others. Some of it was self-imposed. And I'll never forget sitting one evening thinking about this and really for the first time in my life becoming discouraged. I'd always been rather optimistic about things. I always believed there was a way out. I kept striving and I kept planning and kept envisioning a better future. But I had to give up one evening and just say, this is not working out. And all of the dreams I've had came crashing to the ground and broke into smithereens and millions and millions of pieces of disappointment. And I realized that the reason that was happening is that contrary to what I'd been taught, I was in control of my life. And I realized Jesus was supposed to be. I didn't know much about Him then, but that I did know that He is Lord. And it didn't take me long to hit my knees beside my bed that evening and cry out to God and say, Oh God, I have sinned. And I recall, remember, mentally and emotionally, believing in the death and resurrection of Christ there. At that moment, And I told God, God, I'm sorry for what I've done. I give my life to you. I will do anything you want me to do. You see, there was teaching power in my troubles that evening. And that's the night I met Jesus. And everything has been different since then. I've had to go back to him many, many times. Usually on a daily basis with something that afflicts and troubles my heart. And I want to assure you that where you find humility in brokenness, there you will always find Jesus Christ. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Whenever there's trouble, He's the easiest person anywhere to find. So let me ask you, what has your trouble been teaching you? How has your trouble been moving you to Jesus Christ? Don't you think that today is the day to turn everything over to Him. Your guilt, your direction in life, your purpose and reason for living, your hope for the future and eternity. Isn't it time now to do that? Well, I've got good news for you. You've got a church here that's going to let you do that. We won't let that go. The Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You call upon the crucified and risen Savior, He'll cancel your sins, make everything right for eternity, and He will walk with you through the balance of this life. Some of you struggling with other sorrows and difficulties. 
We'll offer prayer for you. You can come by yourself or with a friend to this altar and talk to God. Maybe God is moving you in a totally unrelated area. He wants you to become part of Beach Haven. The door is open. We want you. And uh, if you'll move your letter in your life here, God would have you here. Let me ask you to quickly stand with me and let's pray about it and ask God to do a neat work in your life today. Lord, I want to praise you for the unparalleled wisdom that you display in trouble. And some of us came to Christ out of trouble. Some of us discovered depths of love and heights of joy, even in trouble. And we have found that when you declare you're a refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble, we have found that to be true. But Lord, we've got friends that are struggling today, perhaps ourselves. And I want to ask that like the prodigal son, you would help these friends today to come to their senses and admit why it is they're in the midst of a famine and a pig pen and place in their heart the determination to arise and come to Jesus. Would you let your spirit work today for that purpose and magnify his name as we do? And friend, we're going to sing a song. Our staff will be here. If you need someone to pray with you, if you need to make a decision public, you need to become part of Beach Haven, follow Christ in baptism. If you need to meet the Savior for the first time, would you come? I'm going to finish my prayer, and Tim's going to lead us in singing. Lord, please gather for yourself glory for the name of Jesus. And I pray that the trouble that friends are experiencing today would be radically transformed into a platform of praise, that it would serve these lives for the rest of their life, much like this platform at the front of this worship center has served for almost six decades. Magnify Jesus by building a platform of praise in lives today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you come? Great is thy faithfulness, Lord.